ESPN Audio and the undefeated proudly partner in the intersection where sports and social justice meet. Now alongside L. Duncan, here's Clinton Yates. It's not a happy Thursday, kiddos. We are here. You're listening to The Intersection on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. My name is Clinton Yates. L. Duncan is the co-host. You know me from The Undefeated and Around the Horn. You know her from SportsCenter and Around the Horn as well. All guests on the program appear via the Shell Penzoil Performance Line. And if you want to give us a phone call, 1-888-SAY-ESPN, 1-888-729-3776. Joining us right now on said Shell Penzoil Performance Line is Will Hobson, co-author of the Washington Post investigative report about Washington's football team and the sexual harassment claims from 15 women who worked for the organization along with verbal abuse. Will, I got to ask you this, man. I'm from D.C. I'm a fan of this team. I've been outwardly sort of vocal about how I don't use the word. I don't go to the games. I don't buy the gear. And I just, you know, what did you feel just from a social responsibility standpoint reporting this story, knowing how major this organization is and how much people have enabled this guy for so many years. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing that, that struck out, that stuck out to me, which I think is what, what stuck out most to a few of the women who spoke with us, particularly the reporters who had been harassed by Redskins employees was just how brazen a lot of the behavior was. Uh, I mean, like one woman talked about walking in the office and, and noticing a male trainer two floors down the staircase, looking up her skirt and like, so like he, he was like leaning to get a good angle. He wasn't even trying to hide it. So, I mean, I think, and, and to what these women, to them, it, it just, it, what struck them is that, that there was a broader culture issue that, that so many guys at the organization were acting this way and, and apparently didn't really fear anything in the way of, you know, punitive measures if they were ever caught. We are talking with Will Hobson, co-author of the Washington Post investigative report on Washington's football team. Will, you know, I'm always interested when these sort of exposés come out, if you will, and they typically um, are not complimentary of the subject, the backlash that ensues. It seems as though you got almost little to no cooperation at all from Washington's football team. Uh, Sort of what did that dynamic look like as you were trying to, to gain perspective from both sides of the story? Uh, I mean, we we had some cooperation. I wouldn't say there was no cooperation. Um, I was actually a little pleasantly surprised with um, the press staff they have in there now uh, connecting us. We had, we had a long interview with Ron Rivera, um, and uh, you know they were they were forthright with us about rather abrupt staff changes that happened over the last few days as we were reporting this. Uh, so uh, so yeah. Well, well, I mean that's that timeline is very. Interesting because, you know, Ron was obviously involved with Carolina and, you know, the whole name change thing happened. I, I mean, how just from a, a feel that you had from people, how caught off guard, if, you, if I may, were a lot of these brass, you know, who were used to operating this way in terms of just everything they'd been doing over the course of their careers? Uh, I mean, you know, two of the guys wrote about it weren't there anymore. Um you know, I think in terms of the scouting staff we, we wrote about, I I can't step inside their heads, but um, but I, I I do I do feel for somebody like Ron Rivera who is coming into an organization. I mean, he's there are not many head coaches in the NFL that are having to do interviews with folks like me about you know sexual harassment allegations dating back 15 years. I'm, I'm certain Bill Belichick isn't having to do an interview about that. So the uh, 
Dan Snyder and the current management are putting a lot on Ron's plate, and he has uh, a tall task in front of him in terms of you know sort of turning the culture around there. You speak about turning the culture around. Uh, 14 of the 15 women that were, uh, you know, giving their accounts in the article were off the record. Did any of them seem, and you reporting, hopeful that there could potentially be a culture change? Um, or did it feel like this was so pervasive that, that unfortunately, you could, you could weed out a few of the bad apples, but this was sort of systemic? There's a tremendous amount of cynicism uh, among these women that, uh, that under Dan Snyder, there can be a real culture change there. Uh, they don't, no one accuses him of sexually harassing women. Um, no one even really accuses him of directly witnessing some of this behavior. Uh, but what they do lay uh, at, at his feet is the way he belittles his top executives, they feel sort of sets a tone for the culture of the organization. Like that one woman said, you know, it was my understanding that the way Dennis, her, her boss, Dennis Green, who was a former sales exec, the way Dennis spoke to me was basically the way that Dan spoke to Dennis. And so that, that, that is why there is so, so much skepticism and, and cynicism among those women. Will Hobson, co-author of the Washington Post investigative report about Washington's football team, joins us here on The Intersection. Clinton Yates, L. Duncan. Last thing we'll ask you, Will, how, I mean, how much do you think this changes anything? And I don't mean to be so sort of widespread with that, but just in terms of how the NFL looks at this team from a simple business standpoint and what they represent – outwardly to the rest of the country as part of the league? I don't know. You know, it's always the relationship between the NFL, the league office, and the individual teams is always kind of hard for me to get a, get a grasp on in terms of how much uh, how much influence the, the league office has in terms of telling an individual team, hey, you gotta, you got to cut this out, versus, you know, effectively Goodell and the folks in the league office essentially work for Dan Snyder and the other 31 owners. So, so that'll be an interesting thing to keep track of as, as the months go on here. Will, I want to thank you for all the hard work. Big deal story. Not that that's not everything you do, but I appreciate it, man. He's Will Hobson from the Washington Post. Thanks, Clinton. Appreciate it. Oh, Will's a straight-laced dude, and he's the kind of guy that you want on a story like this. You know what I'm saying? And I appreciate his candor in all of this. I mean, it's just like at some point you think to yourself, well, certain things can change, but other things – you had to bring the light first. And what's so, again, embarrassing about all of this is that all of us in the D.C. area can name 10, 5 to 10, like, reported known stories. I'm not talking about rumors from training camp. I'm not talking about stuff people heard about back in the day. I'm talking about things that were in major productions that we all knew that just... We're there. The cheerleader scandal is one thing. Correct. Like I said, how he's been pumping money out of people. Never mind how he's been complete. Just the general level of sort of dishonesty and uh, misleading. That is sort of the operational method of that team. Never mind the fact that they're garbage on the football field. Like, I just at some point you think to yourself, I, I can't believe this is taking this long for this to come to a head. And it took all this for one crappy football team to face reckoning on a horribly disgusting culture inside of its walls, never mind the racist name. Like, dog, at some point it's just like, man, 
But Clinton, uh, that, but, but Clinton, that's the point, though, is you're saying facing reckoning, and, like, I have zero, zero faith that they will. I, I like, they're, to, to Will's point, they don't, they, there's no smoking gun on, on Dan Snyder alone. There's no reason to assume that they're going to boot him out like they did Jerry Richardson or Donald Sterling. Like, what are they going to do? They're going to tax a billionaire a million, two million dollars, take a couple of draft picks away? That's not a reckoning. That doesn't mean anything. You are you convinced that the league will actually set precedent here? That the league will will make an example out of Dan Snyder and this culture that he's, at the very least, if he doesn't know about it, has allowed to happen, has been permissible. You think that something significant will happen here? Because I don't. I have the zero reckoning faith. I'm referring to is the reckoning of the people around the D.C. area who were just indifferent about this team and about that owner. And at some point, that's going to make a difference because too many people were willing to just say, hey, it's Sunday. Let me get hammered and root for the burgundy and gold. That is what I think within some people's minds will change. People say, oh, you're going out to the stadium? Uh, I'm sorry, what? You're going out to the stadium? Really? You're going to get that guy money to watch that crappy team? Yeah, good idea, bro. Okay, we're not friends. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not saying that everybody's all of a sudden going to grow a brain or grow a heart and stop rooting for their favorite football team. But I'm telling you that a lot of people who believe themselves to be on the so-called right side of history because they just wanted to watch football are seriously rethinking how they affiliate with not just the sport, but this team, you know, that I can just tell you from anecdotal evidence alone. And that has to mean something to me because if those are the very people that enabled this foolishness on a certain level, and I'm not saying that everybody bought, who bought a hot dog at FedEx field is somehow responsible for what some jerk exec does in Ashburn. But the larger point is simple. People kept showing up. Yep. I mean, sort of, not really, but people kept supporting the team. (laughs) You know, and it's It's just like, man, at this point, what are you defending? Right. There's nothing. If you're younger than 40, you ain't seen nothing but my favorite football player, Sean Taylor, run all over the field and busting people up. Shouts to Santana Moss. I like him. He's my friend. And, of course, you've seen all, all sorts of other things. Don't get me started on the posse and all these other – I mean, look, I don't need to argue with you all about the history of this football team. I've seen it. But for those of you who have not and claim that you feel it, you don't. What you feel is what you're looking at on your screen right now. Coming up, we're going to switch gears to the NBA, y'all. I don't really know that I want to do that, but we have to because that's what we do. We cover all of America. It's The Intersection on ESPN Radio. The Intersection, where sports and social justice meet. Proudly presented by ESPN Audio and The Undefeated. Pro tip, if somebody comes to a hotel room door all sweaty and been making a bunch of noise, they ain't been dribbling basketballs. You're listening to The Intersection on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. All guests on the show appear via the Shell Pennzoil performance line. My name is Clint Yates. She's L. Duncan. Give us a phone call. 1-888-ESPN, 1-888-729-3776. Switching gears here a little bit to NBA and the bubble. The buble, as I like to call it. A lot going on down there in terms of, you know, pandemic stuff and this, that, and the third. But that's a separate discussion from what we're going to talk about now, which is, of course, social justice in the messaging. Now, the question is, you know, how much does LeBron not wanting a social justice message on his jersey hurt the NBA in your opinion, in terms of what they're trying to do, more largely, though. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it would, it would just set it in that clip. Like, I just feel like it doesn't hurt at all. I mean, this was this was just simply a gesture to begin with. And I understood the argument that, okay, well, if you if you put you know Black Lives Matter on the court, and if you continue to put some of these some of this messaging on the back of these jerseys, then there will be an opportunity in game to sort of discuss these things. And the hope is is that enough discussion around what defund the police actually means will help it become more uh, understood in pop culture lexicon, right? It won't become so visceral. There won't be such a visceral reaction to seeing Black Lives Matter or defund the police. So if that's the idea of why they're doing this, I, I fully understand that. But it's just it's purely a gesture at that. So like I said, I'm, I'm much more concerned with um, with what they're actually doing, actionable measures that they're doing in their community. And I would also say, you know, for, for someone like a Joel Embiid, I mean, his story alone is such a message of, of, you know, what is possible, you know, how to prosper under these sort of situations and circumstances. And so I, I think that their names, maybe this sounds a little bit too Disney World, but I think their names in some respects or some regards anyway sort of represent the idea of what it is to, you know, to be black and proud and to, to show, uh, you know, sort of where you can start from and where you can end up. So I don't, I have no problem with this, like whatsoever. Um, I, I, I mean, do you, does this matter to you in any way? Not, not necessarily. Hold on. Let's quickly hear what LeBron had to say about his decision not to put a message on his jersey. Okay. Well, we'll pass on that. Well, okay. So it's not that, it's not that it affects me, but here's the thing. Kyle Corver. I actually didn't go with a name on the back of my jersey. Um, and it was, um, you know, it's no no disrespect to the list that was handed out to all the players. Um, I command anyone that decides to put something on the back of their jersey. Um, you know, it's just something that um, didn't really, you know, seriously resonate with my mission, um, with my goal. Um, I would have loved to have um, a say-so on what, went, what would have went on the back of my jersey. I had a couple of things in mind, but I wasn't a part of that process, which is okay. I'm absolutely okay with that. So um, what I will continue to do, um, you know, off the floor and when I'm talking to you guys and when I'm, you know, everything that I do um, has a purpose and has a meaning. So um, I I don't need to have something on the back of my jersey for people to understand my mission or know what I'm about. Okay. Thank you, LeBron. Dropped in a little late there. Got into the got, got back. You know, sometimes you get, you you follow the play and you're a little late. That's how that happens sometimes. So, okay. No, I don't have any problems with LeBron is choosing to do. However, to the point of symbolism and how it affects people, I do think that there is something to be said for that. Kyle Korver. Kyle Korver. For those of you who are not familiar with Kyle Korver's work, just put him in your Google box. He will be wearing Black Lives Matter on the back of his jersey. Mm-hmm. Now, why is that important? Because Kyle, I believe it was two seasons ago, he came out and wrote a whole thing in the Players' Tribune about basically, yo, Being in the league informed my opinion about what was going on in the world. Yeah. And at some level, L, I have to believe that minds are changeable. And not everything is necessarily going to be a structural, foundational shift that solves anything. But there are going to be certain things, particularly for younger people. And by younger people, I don't mean people in the bars trying to act cool. I mean children who are going to look at their favorite players. And in their impressionable minds, they're going to say, oh, that guy's cool. I wonder what he thinks about the world. And when they listen to those people talk about the world, it will make a difference about what they think. 
It doesn't have to be that much more complicated than that for me, which is why the symbolism works. Now, that's not to say that's the only thing they should be doing. But if a grown man like Kyle Korver can bring himself to putting Black Lives Matter on the back of his jersey, I think that we can understand how important it is simply to have those words out there in general, even if, as you say, they don't need them on the back of everybody's jersey. I like the fact that certain guys are doing certain things and certain guys aren't doing other things. That variety is part of the reason why I think this is a good idea. So I understand the desire to say, oh, well, y'all got to band together. Y'all got to do this and y'all got to do that. You know, different things affect different people in different ways, you know, and for people who don't necessarily feel that they need to be, I don't want to say hit over the head because that's a bad metaphor, but I mean, they don't need something directly in their face telling them what to do. But younger people who just say, oh, that guy's pretty smart. I like that guy. I'm down with what he thinks. I'll bang with that dude. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's very real in a league like the NBA where the players are more popular and the reach is global. Oh. Yeah, I, and, and which is fine. I also think that there's something to be said for sort of like allowable, permissible, mandated forms of protest. I mean, yeah. I th- right? Like, I think that this this resonated and, and for me felt differently when it was like, oh, they're going to get to put, you know, this messaging on the back of their jersey. And, like, obviously no one was going to be allowed to put F the police or anything like that on the back of their jersey. But this right. idea that they sat down and came up with a list of, like, here are acceptable forms of protest. And, like, this is what you can say. I think that really very much uh, sanitized the idea of all of this for many players. And and I would say, you know, the, to the point of what you said about, like, finding out what your what your favorite player is about, like, this just speaks to how lazy people tend to be in the society. It's called Google, dude. If you want to know how LeBron feels or Jimmy Butler feels or any of these dudes feel that won't have the messaging on the back of their jersey, if you want to know how they feel, just Google it. Like, what has LeBron said about – look at his Instagram. He hasn't posted about basketball in months. Like, to me, it's just very lazy to say, like, I'll only know if they put Black Lives Matter on the back of their jersey that they think Black Lives Matter, which then says Not if they don't, us- then they don't. Are as smart as you, Al, when we were kids. Okay. Some people had to learn from athletes. Coming up, we're going to talk to a former NBA player about this exact situation. It's The Intersection on ESPN Radio. The Intersection, where sports and social justice meet. Proudly presented by ESPN Audio and The Undefeated. Section on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. I'm Clint Yates. She's L. Duncan. She's dancing. I'm talking. We're presented by Progressive Insurance, and all guests on the program appear via the Shell Pennzoil Performance Line. Joining us right now on said Shell Pennzoil performance line is Mahmoud Abdul Raouf, former NBA player, whom, amongst his very many career accomplishments as a basketball player, you might remember him from dunks and free throws, daggone good player, seen him in the big three as well. He also came into the national spotlight when, of course, in 1996, he refused to stand for the Star Spangled Banner before an NBA game. He was summarily suspended. And uh, the rest is history on some level, but he worked out an agreement in order to be able to do what he wanted to do during the anthem. This is obviously an important topic now in 2020, many years later. Mahmoud, I would like to say thank you for joining the program. And my first question is simple. What do you think about how the NBA has handled the summer of 2020 in America's reckoning with race? Uh, (laughs) I haven't really been uh, paying a whole lot of attention to what the NBA has been doing um, in, in terms of handling this situation. Uh, you, you're saying the recent situation, correct? Yes, I'm referring to basically the country realizing that Black Lives Matter is a thing that is not a political statement, it's simply a expressive agency of black folks. And, you know, last segment we talked about the fact that some players are going to be putting 
various things on the back of their jerseys. Kyle Korver, for example, is going to be putting Black Lives Matter. But LeBron James said he's just sticking with his own name. And overall, I think there's some questions about, you know, is this necessarily the way for you as very much a pioneer in regards to what our protests in the NBA for current players to make a statement about the larger case of America? Um, well, I, I mean, uh, of course it's a personal choice that each player has. Uh, I, I think it's, uh, as long as it's sincere, I think it's a good gesture for people to do that. But at the same time, uh, I'm not necessarily opposed to people who don't want to do it. Uh, oftentimes these things become um, symbols over substance. You know, it's 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 almost synonymous with, uh, uh, you know, wearing the I Can't Breathe shirts. It brings recognition. Of course, these are these are high visible uh, athletes. Uh, they draw a lot of attention, and so it's good. It, it gets the conversation going. It brings attention to the situation. But of course, it's bigger than T-shirts. It's bigger than changing names of master bedrooms and and, and all of those things. We're joined on the line with Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, former NBA player. Um, Mahmoud, 20 years after you uh, refused to stand for the national anthem, we saw Colin Kaepernick do the same thing. And it appeared at, at, at one point that much like you, he would essentially have to martyr himself for this cause, right? Uh, but now, because of this sort of awakening that has happened, people are, are now sort of firmly on his side. We've seen Nike partner up with him. I mean, Disney is partnering up with him now. We saw the NFL apologize, not to him, but indirectly about the treatment of him and the recognition that he was blackballed. What does that feel like for you, knowing that essentially your your form of peaceful protest cost you what was to be a very promising career? Man, you said a lot of things uh, uh, to, to, to address, really. Um, I mean, for me, it's, it's, it says uh, that nothing really has changed. I mean, you know, when I did what I did in 96 and then you have Kaepernick uh, did what he did in the year that he did it uh, over pretty much some of the same issues. Um, it's just an indication that not much has changed. Um, um, I'm trying to remember your, the, the other, the other point that you just, yeah, just made. The idea, wonder. the idea that you never were, were given that second opportunity. And at least it appears like history is starting to sort of turn and calling Kaepernick's favor. He's now teaming up with Disney. He has a lucrative endorsement deal with Nike. What does it feel like to you in terms of like there being some steps taken and that at least Colin Kaepernick still has the opportunity to have a career? Well, I mean, it wasn't surprising to me that his, his career ended. Um, You know, I said it all along when it happened, because this there's a history of of these things happening. Whether you're looking at Muhammad Ali uh, and and other players, you know Craig Hodges, uh, it's argued the same thing happened to him. So the writing was on the wall. Um, you know, you said something earlier about a lot of like Disney and uh, Nike and all of these people are, are supporting him. I'm just I'm not so for sure if that's really the case. I don't know if it's for public consumption. I don't know if it's for business. You know. There's a there's a political scientist named Richard Itten said something years ago. He said he cautions against viewing resistance and these things as inherently revolutionary because because once they become routine, it's easily uh, anticipated by dominant authorities and molded and shaped in their hegemonic understanding of things. So it's like when you begin to allow, for example, athletes to and I and I say that in quotes, allow athletes to wear shirts or to say certain things. 
you know, when this type of movement becomes popular, sometimes it, it doesn't have the punch that it would normally have. It kind of reminds me of back during the civil rights era when they were kind of given a, a, a permit and told when to come out and protest, when to leave. Well, that's really not a legitimate protest or resistance movement because you're given permission to do it. So I don't know. I, I, I'm just, I'm still waiting because um, sometimes these, these huge organizations, they jump on the bandwagon because it's popular. But I, I, I just question how sincere it is. And you, you begin to look at the sincerity when you look at the actions. You know, look at hiring policies, you know, a whole bunch of other things. So I'm, I'm just skeptical when it comes to something like that. You're listening to The Intersection on ESPN Radio. It's presented by Progressive's Home Insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. We're talking with Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, former NBA player. And let me ask you this, man. People look at the NBA mm-hmm. now and they say, oh, NBA's mad woke. Everybody knows what's going on in the NBA regarding progressiveness. But then if they actually watch the footage of your specific protest, they'd probably say, dang, that's pretty tame. This dude got suspended for that? Like, how do you feel that the sort of – how do you feel about this now in terms of how the NBA is looked at these days versus what it was back when you were playing? Definitely, uh, athletes are, uh, are given more of an opportunity uh, to say certain things and, and to take positions. But, you know, I kind of remember what Dave Zyron said. You know, it's, uh, uh, he, he said it all depends on the type of politics. You know, I, I look back at, I think, what was happening in, in China not too long ago, right? And the NBA is supposed to be so progressive, but yet when I think uh, James Harden and I think Westbrook was about to say something concerning the situation out there, they were shut off real quick and said, oh, uh, just stick to basketball. So if it's so, so progressive, then why would they why would they stop from communicating and saying certain things on an issue? So... I don't know, but I definitely think that because of social media now, things have have uh, uh, shifted uh, in favor of many of the athletes um, because they have more of a you know they have more of a voice uh, right now. Unlike unlike when we were coming out, if we said something or did a certain thing, that the media controlled the narrative more. And one of the examples in particular was when I think Abdullah, the football player in the NFL. He went into the end zone and he went into prostration and neither the NFL wanted to find him. And then they wanted to suspend him. But then people got on social media and said, hey, what about Tebow? And they had to pull it back real quick. So with access to information, now that we didn't necessarily have then, it's easier to have this access. Uh, athletes seem to definitely be, again, it seems uh, um, more aware and more knowledgeable and as well as m- more willing to to go out and and to take risk um, more so than than when we were coming when we were coming up. He's Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. He's a former NBA player. And look him up, kiddos. All right? Yes. This dude was fighting fights long before y'all were yes. figuring out how to drink yep. beers. Okay? Thank you, Mahmoud. <laughs> I appreciate your time. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. I used to crush people in NBA Jam with that dude. He was nice. He was so just nice. Just so you he know was, that. He was doing Steph Curry stuff before Steph Curry. You got to go right. pull the tapes. Pull the tapes. And go watch the tape of his protest. It is It's so calm. subtle. Yeah, it's so subtle. It's so subtle. It was, he was an outlier then, though. You know, 1996, people weren't doing this. Nope. That's what they yeah. call mm-hmm. progress, kiddos. All right, yep. coming up. Ooh, got a little something special for you. I'm just making that up. We're oh, always Lord. special. It's the <laughs> intersection <laughs> on ESPN Radio. <laughs> 
the intersection, where sports and social justice meet. Proudly presented by ESPN Audio and The Undefeated. You're listening to The Intersection on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. Dreddy's got a job to do, L. Understand that. We're presented by Progressive Insurance, and all guests on the show appear via the show Penzo Performance Line. Who do we have on today? Of course, we just had Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, who came on. By the way, OG, flatly, is the words I would use to describe him. Oh, what would you use? Yeah, so my, in similar fashion, my father-in-law converted to Islam um, in his early 30s. And when I tell you, they sound almost exactly the same. Like, there's just these (laughs) men who are so well-read, who understand the world, who just sit and talk to you, and it feels like butter. it, It was, it felt like apple pie to me. I was like, hello, father. It's great. That was, it was inc- fantastic. It was Always glad to have him on the program. <laughs> Jason Reed, of course, of course, joined us after we, uh, you know, had to discuss and will continue to discuss the situation happening in Washington with the football team and the extremely poignant story that was written in the Washington Post today. Jason Reed covers football for the undefeated, and he's a senior writer. But of course, we also had Will Hobson, who wrote, co-wrote the story with Liz Clark. That's right. Um, you know, and. Well, I mean, I know that we, you know, we got into this a little bit, but the message you said for young women and girls that are trying to get into this business, I, I'm going to ask you to repeat that if they happened. Anybody, not just little boys, no, excuse me, not just little girls, but little boys out there too who need to understand what's right from wrong. Yeah, just I just I I want to advocate for girls to understand that you know women like the women that so bravely spoke to the Washington Post are trying to create a better environment for you, but don't be deterred. Um, and I would ask for, for little boys um, and those that are raising little boys, you know, this idea that you have to have a sister or you have to have a, you know, a wife or a girlfriend or you have to have some close relationship with a woman to care about advocating for women is just so false. And I would say make sure that you're raising little boys that are allies, little boys that will stand up for women because we're brave and we're strong and we don't need anyone to take care of us, but we do need people to advocate for us. And um, I, I hope that, you know, I didn't I didn't want to cry about it, but I'm just very frustrated and I I wish people would protect us too and stand up for us. So, um, yeah, that's all, you know, keep going girls, keep going ladies. Like we we're made of something different and we shouldn't have to deal with these things, but we are equipped to do it. So just keep, keep fighting the good fight. She's El Duncan. I'm Clinton Yates. You're listening to the intersection on ESPN radio. All right, it's time for the curriculum. All right, couple headlines from around Black America. L's out here doing the 1992 dance in hip hop. If you don't know what that is, you can go back and check out Rap City. You know how that goes. (laughs) Kenny Stills, he was arrested in Louisville protesting, seeking justice for Breonna Taylor. Your thoughts on this, L? Yeah, he and 87 others were arrested. Uh, One of those, uh, one of the the, uh, crimes are being charged with is felony intimidation because apparently they jumped a fence to go to uh, Daniel J. Cameron's house and he felt intimidated and somehow he's also being charged with the idea that they're trying to intimidate uh, J. Cameron into making a decision. Um, Yeah, I think it's laughable that protesters are are being arrested and facing stiffer penalties than the cops that actually killed Breonna Taylor. So why don't we do a little work there and miss me with this due diligence? It has been months. What are you waiting on? Felony intimidation. Felony intimidation. Something tells me I know the requirements for the intimidation to become a felony. Correct. That's just me. 
yeah. you know, mm. pretty obvious to me. Mm. All right, John Calipari and Harvard coach Tommy Amaker are working with the John McClendon Foundation to launch the Minority Leadership Initiative, which will provide minorities with practical experiences in college athletics as well as opportunities to build their network and move up in this field. I'm going to start off here. <sighs> LZ Granderson, a colleague of ours, wrote a column about this similar type of situation in L.A. called The Alliance. A bunch of the pro teams, rivalries aside, are getting together to try to create opportunities for black and brown kids in L.A. This is of a similar sort of ilk in terms of trying to get people into the fold and trying to get people opportunities to do things. Let me explain this very simply. The fact that these things have to exist is the number one indicator that there is a systemic problem. So when you sit out here and you tell me, oh, well, has anybody ever looked at a black guy and said, oh, he's black, he doesn't get the job? It's, it's not about that. It's about the fact that all of the systems that get people into places to potentially achieve, oftentimes we're either socialized out of or just overtly locked out of through whatever reason or not. And so I commend Tommy Amaker and John Calipari and everybody in the alliance, but I just want to make a more large point, a larger point, excuse me, about why these things have to exist. They have to exist outside of the system. You know why? Because the system ain't for us, though. Yeah, and also I really hope, and I'm hopeful that um, this pipeline that they're trying to create is for is for, for head coaching positions because far too often black coaches that are in the league, whether they're assistants or, or whatever you know their titles are, they always end up being sort of this roundabout, like they're a, they're a, a player, like a person-to-person player connection type of role. Like they get it. They know what it's like to be black and an athlete, so like that's their role on the team. And I just, you know, again, it's very coded in a way that doesn't make, like, like as if they're not smart enough to draw up plays, but they're definitely definitely like cool enough and understand enough how to speak to another brown person. So I hope that this pipeline is for meaningful positions in some of these organizations. Which is particularly important when we think about what most recently happened in terms of the NCAA. We had the FBI all over the place mm-hmm. and guess who were all the people getting arrested? All the brothers getting blamed somehow. We're the only ones responsible for a whole system of mess. Yeah. Weird. Sneakers. Sneakers. Funny how that works out. <laughs> That's us. Yeah. We could use a couple more positions in the top. I'm just saying. All right. Drew Holiday is donating his NBA bubble salary, $5.3 million, to start a social justice fund. Your thoughts? Yeah, incredible. This family, I mean, him and Yo. his wife, Lauren, right? Like Gangsters. they have, They have been through so much. They're so amazing. They're incredible. And, like, for I, I saw a little bit on Twitter, which is always, like, the worst place to look for any kind of reaction because the worst of the worst um, thrive there is this idea that it's like, well, Drew Holiday's made plenty of money. Like, what's 5 point? Th- Don't nobody in the world want to give up no $5.3 million. What's $5.3 so What Are you joking? Are you just, he'll make it up next year. He'll get it. Um, you know, so I, I think it's, it's remarkable. And again, like this is so much more meaningful than him just saying like, you know, group economics on the back of his jersey. No offense, <laughs> no, Andrea Godala. No offense, Andrea Godala. I'm just saying. That's terrible. I'm just, I'm just saying. Right. If you think somebody's got 5.3 million to just drop on something, Correct. let me hold something, player. Please. Let me know. Because I ain't got 5.3 million hanging around. To be making fun of anybody putting that kind of scratch towards any good cause. Not remotely. All right, lastly, on the heels of the MEAC suspending all fall sports for an indefinite period, do you think that COVID-19 is going to have a different effect on HBCU conferences and programs? Um, uh, <laughs> I hate being this person that says I'm not exactly sure. 
that that the MIAC, when it comes to the MIAC, that they're really trailblazing in any significant way. I mean, that's sort of like the MIAC would essentially be the same idea as like the Ivy League. Like people were like, now that the Ivy League is, uh, you know, they're not the first domino to fall in these major programs suspending anything. Um, In terms of HBCUs, I know there's one program, Clayton, that hopes not. You know, Howard's like, we finally got a top prospect. We don't don't want Former intersection guest. Correct. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Do you think it'll impact HBC? I do. I mean, I think there's just a simple logistics factor that is going to hit. I mean, you know how this always goes. When stuff goes wrong, it hits us harder first. You know, always. And that you know, and that's that's just kind of a part of life. Whether it be because of the travel schedule, whether it be because of you know, if the Ivy League guys don't get an opportunity to play, it's not like their lives necessarily change that much outside of their opportunity to play. You know, a lot of these HBCU guys, there's an outside shot that some of these guys can still be playing at the next level, whether it be overseas or elsewhere. However, we are wrapped up with the curriculum right now because I need to finish this point. Okay. We learned over the past week that the redeemable value of the Washington football franchise rhymes with hero as far as I'm concerned. Now, I'm telling you this as a kid that grew up going to RFK, watching an actual good team, and understanding the value to the community that they had. So when you think back on everything you thought you got out of that experience, understand what it fed. Terrible team. Racist name. Awful. Sexist. Office. Culture. It's all right there, kiddos. Nothing I can do about it. It's the holy Something trinity. you can do about it. I'm, El- I'm not L. Duncan. I'm Clint Yates. She's L. Duncan. <laughs> the Intersection on ESPN Radio. Who dug it? The Intersection, where sports and social justice meet. Proudly presented by ESPN Audio and The Undefeated.